but for the next half hour, we're talking Brexit. It's funny, it seems like we used to talk Brexit all the time, and now we rarely do. There's another round of important negotiations in the week to come, as Britain and the EU seek to strike a trade deal before December 31st. I think, like a lot of people, I'm sort of vaguely aware that Brexit is still rumbling on, but I must admit, I've rather sort of given up on keeping track of exactly what all the details are and what it all means. So the plan today is to basically have people explain. Uh, I do know that uh, in a speech this week, the EU's chief negotiator, uh, Michel Barnier, said that Brussels will reject a free trade agreement with Britain and trigger a no-deal end to the transition period unless Boris Johnson gives credible guarantees on subsidies and standards. That's credible guarantees being his words there. Uh, He blamed the deadlock in negotiations on the British side, dismissed Downing Street's threats to walk away without a deal and mocked the idea that Britain would shrug off a no-deal outcome and it it would all be okay. So what are the chances of progress in the short term? What basically is going on? What are they fighting about? And will there be an agreement before the end of the year? To discuss next steps and explain all this, I'm joined by James Forsyth, who is the political editor of The Spectator, and who wrote about this for The Times this week, uh, Professor Anand Menon, who's the director of the think tank UK in a Changing Europe, and Barney Reynolds, who is a fellow of the Centre for Brexit Policy and a partner at Sherman and Sterling. Uh, James, we'll start with you. You wrote in The Times this week about, um, well, about all this, and you said that, uh, that in number 10, they, they, they think that the, ch- the chances of a Brexit deal have significantly receded over the summer. You said they now think there's only a 30 to 40 percent chance that there will be an agreement uh tell us why it, it's tempting hugo to view this as kind of more brexit theater kind of mm-hmm. like those kind of u.s box sets it always at the end of the penultimate episode everything looks doomed and then in the season finale it all sorts itself out right what i think makes this impasse feel different is that previously lots of times the brexit talks have stalled the two sides have essentially been talking past each other they've not understood each other's positions this time the problem is they actually understand each other too well the eu is uh obsessed with this idea called the, the level playing field the idea that the uk would not be able to undercut the eu after after it has left the government doesn't want to move on state aid. Now, this at first seems very, very weird. State aid is essentially the extent to which governments can subsidise companies. Uh, the UK uses about half the average uh, of EU countries of state aid. Germany, for example, uses double the EU average. But the issue comes back to the Johnson government's desire to kind of reshape the British economy. Mm-hmm. It believes that you need to be able to use kind of generous state aid provisions to boost the UK tech sector. And its argument is that the... the, the the regime that the the EU is trying to push the UK towards, which would not be exactly the same as the EU's, but very similar, would, would stop it from doing that. And that would mean that over time, you would end up with kind of technological vassaldom, uh, dependent on either the US or China. And I think if you think back to the Huawei 5G debacle, they feel that you've got to have UK companies that can do some of these things that are going to form kind of part of your kind of critical, sensitive national infrastructure in the future. And is the... Um... Is this sort of the, the looming threat of no deal that they're talking up inside number 10? Is that, look, is that real or is that just what they want us to think and want the EU to think? Because you, you always wonder with these things like, I mean, there's, there is a lot of theatre, there is a lot of posturing. The posturing is, is political and sort of self, self-perpetuating. Are we being sold a line or is this actually what they think might be going on? Well, the reason, I think, the reason this feels different to me, Hugo, than some of the other times when there have been kind of no deal sabre-rattling, is that there is a real issue of substance here between the two sides, and it's not easy to see what the fix is. The, 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 the Johnson government prioritises future flexibility, and it, it's thinking very long term about this. It's thinking, what if the UK government in 2040 wanted to do something, and these restrictions prevented it from doing so? The EU is thinking, well, hang on a second, 
what we don't, if the UK wants to use its, uh, the power of its government to essentially build up a tech sector to be a global player, that is obviously going to have implications for the EU. And one of the things the EU worries about is, is what they would call a kind of distortion of competition after Brexit. Now, I think there are lots of differences here because you know there are lots of cabinet ministers who look at all the problems coming down the track uh, this autumn and think, you know, why would you want to add a no-deal Brexit mm-hmm. on top of that? But I think Boris Johnson is, is is very convinced of this point about the need for flexibility on state aid. You know, okay. I, I say in the in the piece that he can equip, but he sometimes thinks that only three people in the government agree with him on this on this question of how kind of uh, purist or ambitious to be on this point. And, and I think I think it is hard to see what the fix is um, because I think the the EU did move a bit on state aid. The EU started off the negotiation with, with a, a position that even some. EU capital thought okay. was slightly absurd of demanding that the UK carry on following exactly the same rules as the EU after Brexit. The EU has moved on that, but the UK government, to the EU's frustration, kind of hasn't hasn't taken that move. Sure. Okay. So, uh, Anand Menon, Professor Menon. Um, Anand, Professor, what shall I call you? What, 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 Don't call what? me Professor. Okay. Okay, Professor. It's, it's <laughs> instruction taken to heart. Look, um, you're you're a more uh, a, a more Brexit skeptic voice, should we say? I guess we should call ourselves Brexit skeptics now. Um, what do you um What do you make of this? Is this is this is this really is your is your take on all this the same as James's? Do you think the government is being sincere in thinking that there, that there may be no choice but to go to no deal? Do you think they're being? Do you think it's realistic the the rules they want on state aid? What's your take? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is I, I defer absolutely to James when it comes to knowledge about the thinking in Number Ten. So I'm not going to quibble about that. But I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, I think it is. The, there are some people in government who understand that it is in their political interest to get a deal because of the optics. Because if you think back to this time last year, Boris Johnson portrayed himself as having achieved the impossible by signing up to a deal when no one thought he would. And actually, that must be politically at least quite appealing on its own terms. The second thing is that, yes, there is uh, an obvious reason why the British government wants to have the freedom to act, as it will, in the technology sector when it comes to state aid. But weighed against that is the fact that the impact of no deal will be real, will be fairly uh, immediate, and could be quite disruptive for several months at a minimum. So, the government has got to weigh these things up. There is a clear incentive for trying to avoid no deal. But as James says, there are real questions of principle that separate the two sides now. And I think it's only in the latter part of September, early October, when the heads of state and government, including Boris Johnson, really start to engage in this negotiation process that we'll know if anyone is really willing to make the concessions that are needed. Sure. OK. Well, uh, uh, Barney Reynolds, I mean, you're, you're, more, you're more Brexit friendly, shall we say. Um, is um look it's from your perspective is 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 the sort of the the idea of a, a looming no deal if this doesn't work is that is that is that a disaster Will, um, has, has has the whole project been a disaster if we end up with no deal or is that just how it might have to go um i'm not sure i think it's the wrong question in a way i mean brexit <laughs> is about reclaiming sovereignty so we went into a pooled sovereign arrangement with the eu uh other eu states uh, that the public has decided is no longer something the UK wishes to be part of. And so we're coming out again. And in, and in fact, going to the state aid point, we need to come out with what we went in with. We can't sort of, if we're members of a club, we can't be asked to leave clothing on the way out uh, in, in, the, in the club building. So um, I don't, I mean, you know, on a no deal scenario, if everything uh, fell away, including the withdrawal agreement and protocols, 
internationally operate under the global international legal framework of WTO law, which has been developed for the sophisticated way since 1947. Uh, it's not like the 19th century. I mean, there's a massively co uh, complicated and sophisticated fabric uh, that would underpin any trading. It would be preferable to get a deal, there's no question. And the question uh, and the issue is, can that be achieved on a sovereign basis? And just on the state aid point, uh, I don't think the UK can shift its position. I think the government is saying and doing all the right things. I think Boris Johnson and David Frost's analysis is, is correct, uh, which is that you can't apply someone else's rules in relation to subsidisation outside their unit. And so um, the, under international WTO law, on the sort of high seas, as it were, if we had no deal at all, there are complicated um, remedies for um, incoming uh, goods and products uh, that have been um, subsidised um, in an anti-competitive way or an unfair way for, for your own market, uh, or when things are dumped on your market. Mm -hmm. And um, those remedies are used by countries all around the world successfully, including the EU uses those remedies. So um, the question that what the EU seemed to be asking, which is just a, a logical absurdity, is, the act, is this, that we continue applying some version of EU state aid law, which is their subsidisation regime, which goes further than the WTO regime. Uh, and th there's no way, that I think, that a sovereign state can, consistent with its sovereignty, be asked to apply someone else's uh, subsidisation regime. What we may do is have our own internal subsidisation regime uh, in order to ensure that there's fairness in the UK's internal market between England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Uh, we, and that's a decision for the government. Sure. Okay. Um, we could also potentially, in a treaty, agree to more sophisticated mechanics uh, for calculating um, tariffs, anti-dumping tariffs, counterfeiting duties, so that there is a, a levelling up, a level playing field through those financial adjustments. Agreeing never to do things which someone else deems creates um, unfair competition in their discretion and so on, in, in an area which is as, as, as shaded and in some instances as arbitrary as, as the state aid regime, uh, just as a starter. And so we need to wait and see whether the EU are willing to discuss a sovereign, uh, a sovereign relationship or not. Sure. Um, Anand, do you think, um, is any of this a surprise? I mean, have we always been headed here since, to, to basically here since since the vote? Or, or do you think, was there a chance that we could have, that, that this sort of sticking point could have been resolved a long time ago? Well, I mean, it's easy to say with hindsight that this was inevitable. But remember that under Theresa May, the government negotiated a far different sort of Brexit deal and one that involved the EU aligning itself with EU standards. So it wasn't necessarily going to end up like this. But I think it's very, very clear under Boris Johnson. And uh, David Frost made a speech back in February in Brussels, which underlined this. The whole point of Brexit was to regain regulatory autonomy. I don't think there's ever been much doubt that this government has been serious about this. The question has always been whether they would compromise at the margins in order to get a deal. I don't think there was ever an issue with Boris Johnson. They would sign up to the, the, the gamut of EU regulations that were implied under Theresa May's deal. Mm, yeah, sure. Okay. But just on that, um, you go, the margins, though, for state aid uh, don't exist because EU state aid law, which is constantly evolving at the discretion of the ECJ, already covers tax policy. Um, and even London, London taxi lanes uh, and, and in the use of London taxi lanes are such, such national things which don't appear to have any effect on trade at all. So it's, it's something that you can't control or predict and already intrudes on policy. It's basically the biggest EU policy lever there is. So, 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 I mean, you'd say that it was always heading to this, to this, to this impasse, basically, because because this this is what Brexit is. 
Well, if the EU wishes to apply a mercantilist philosophy to a trade relationship with the UK and test it out and see whether the UK is prepared to agree to some sort of give up of sovereignty on the way out, that this moment is inevitable. It would have been, it's regrettable, and, it, and one would have thought that, that um, Boris Johnson and David Frost had, had made it sufficiently clear that we wouldn't be having this discussion. But we are, and at some point, uh, I mean, I think that the principles, uh, the member state uh, leaders need to engage and on a, a sovereign discussion with the UK. And, and, and this moment was inevitable. Whether it was inevitable right now, I think, uh, is more questionable. It depends on the reading of the politics. I think there's a lot of misreading of the politics and the position of Downing Street in the mm. EU. Um, and no doubt behind the scenes, they are evaluating that and I, I think coming to terms with it. Sure. Well, it will be... Can, talk, I, can, well, sorry, can we'll, I just chip in quickly, Hugo? I do, please, yes. Here. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, there's a slight wrinkle and I don't want to send your listeners to sleep because it's quite techie, but... We have already approved the withdrawal agreement, and in that agreement there is a Northern Ireland Protocol. Which and does a lot article, of this anyway, right? Yeah? Yeah, which we've approved and is in force, but one part of that protocol basically applies EU state rules essentially, though not quite in their entirety, to Northern Ireland. So we are, to an extent, under those rules anyway, because, for instance, if the UK were to give UK-wide tax breaks that include Northern Ireland, the EU would argue that that's covered by the protocol and therefore the ECJ has a say. And we don't know how how narrowly or broadly the courts will interpret that article, but there is a degree of EU state aid law mm. implicit in what we've already agreed to. Sure. Okay, yeah, but well, just, well, just well, to put that as a key point to put in context here, the Northern Ireland Protocol is not a backstop. The EU had no ability under Article 50, the power it used to sign up to the withdrawal agreement, to agree to a long-term relationship with the UK. Okay. Um, and it was envisaged, it's envisaged that that long-term relationship, which we get at year-end, is one that respects UK sovereignty and its internal market. So that protocol falls away and it needs to be replaced. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll be coming back to Brexit very shortly. We've got about another <laughs> another eight or nine minutes. I reckon we can solve it. Uh, but first, uh, have a listen to this and I'll be with you, with you soon. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson tonight from 7 on Times Radio. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, the former chairman of Marks & Spencer and Ocado, Lord Stuart Rose, talks candidly about the lasting effects caused by the tragic suicide of his mother when he was only 26 years old. I'll tell you what I did. I kicked into, right, someone's got to take control mode. It's a silly thing. I'm sure many, many people have had it over the internet time now that's why i quite like to plan you don't plan these things you don't plan for death you don't plan for crisis you don't plan for this past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson lord stuart rose in his own words tonight from seven on times radio hugo rifkind on times radio with ancestry bring your backstory to life Hello, this is Hugo Rifkind on Times Radio through until one o'clock. I'm currently in the process of solving Brexit with uh, James James Forsyth, Anand Menon, and Barney Reynolds. Um, look, James, we've been talking about state aid and the way the way basically the basically state aid being the sticking point at, at, at the end of uh, what may be the end of Brexit negotiations. The politics here are fascinating. This is a Tory government. They, for for decades, if not if not if not even centuries, these are people who've not believed in state aid. They don't they don't they don't like the idea of state aid. They don't they don't support they don't sort of subsidise industry in this sort of way. And yet, this could be the sticking point that 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 basically knocks down a Brexit deal. Is this real? I mean, is this is it is it about what they actually want to do, or is it about what they want the right to do? 
I, I think it is real in that the technological revolution that is underway is something that sort of obsesses this Downing Street. And their view very strongly is that countries that have their own sovereign capabilities in these areas will have much greater freedom of action in the 21st century than those countries that don't. But, who, and, but who's, again, who, I mean, who's, who's the model here? Well, I mean, around the world, which is the country that's subsidising its sort of... It's, it's, it's the tech US industry. is the obvious example. I mean, the, the, the two obvious examples are the two tech superpowers at the moment are the US and China, right. and both very heavily use the power of the state to shape markets and technology in these places. I, I think we, we're talking about how to solve Brexit. I think there is there is, there is only one obvious fudge to my mind right now. And, and that is a deal that says something like this. Uh, the UK has the sovereign right to, to do what it wants. The EU has the sovereign right to impose tariffs if the UK does that. Uh, and what that essentially would do is it would defer all these arguments into the future. So oh, we would, um, uh, to cheer up your listeners, we would have these arguments over the next decade or so rather than just over the next three months. And I, I think that there are obviously issues with that for both sides. But I think it, it and I think this only will happen if uh, Boris Johnson and the other EU national leaders basically get together and say, right, we've got enough on our plate with COVID, et cetera, et cetera, yep. that, that we're just going to fudge this for let's, now let's, let's go and for, let's prolong go for the, the argument over the next decade. Let's go for the long I, grass I approach the, again, basically. Look, but, 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 sorry, Jim. The uh, telling problem, sorry. Uh, Barney, Barney Reynolds, you, you, you wrote this week about your preferred route to a deal. Um, tell, us, tell us reasonably briefly how, how, that would, how that would happen. Yes, and it basically um, looks um, under the hood of the EU's legal arrangements and recognises that the Eurozone um, is wrongly treated as financing itself with sovereign quality debt um, because the Eurozone, northern Eurozone st- states are dodging the necessity to accept um, mutual liability for the debts of the South. Right, sure. But whereas a federal zone needs to be financed federally. Mm-hmm. And the effects of that, there are three key effects of that, which are adverse to the UK, US and others. Um, which we can't do anything about in the within the EU, but we, we need to afterwards in order to protect the UK market. Uh, one is that, that there's um, uh, systemic uh, trade dumping on the UK's markets uh, from the northern Eurozone in particular because of an artificially depressed currency value because of this lack of neutralisation of debt. For the layman, you're basically talking about Germany being able to, to, to produce lots of stuff which it can't sell to southern Europe, so it sells to us. Well, it sells artificially cheaply to us. Right. And then there's, in addition, unfair subsidisation of all Eurozone producers through a complex uh, mechanics through the EU's Target 2 system, the Eurozone Target 2 system, and artificially cheap Eurozone banking because of the legal fiction I mentioned. And then, in addition, there's dumping of financial risk on the UK and the world, which is currently mitigated by the UK because the EU is not properly um, covering the risk that's created through this mistreatment of sovereign debt. Now, what this means is that under WTO law, if we had no deal at all, uh, the, the UK can and should impose anti-dumping tariffs and duties to pull up the pricing from those incoming goods to what they should be on, on, on the world market. Right. Uh, by reference to Japan, Japanese goods. And in addition, it needs to apply international regulatory standards to mitigate Eurozone risk, which would be very expensive for the EU. So this is, And this is why, in fact, we can't agree to EU state aid law and we can't allow the Northern Ireland Protocol to stand off the year end because it would present some of these measures to be taken. In terms of a deal we can offer, I, I agree with James's proposal. I mean, you know, that's just the default under WTO law. 
uh, we can offer to um, have a normal neutral system of tariffs and duties. What we can, under a deal, uh, agree to do is to take evidence from the EU on the level of dumping subsidisation going um, uh, 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 taking place before we calculate and calibrate our tariffs and duties. We, it, we need, in order to be able to neutralise uh, the financial services risk that's being created and polluting the global markets, either to have an enhanced equivalence deal on financial services and ancillary uh, services in order for us to continue our mitigating role in relation to this debt, which is what we do for the world now. Or we need, with the US as the other host of the global market, to impose uh, international regulatory standards that wants to cauterize the risk and ensure that it does, remains within the Eurozone and doesn't pollute the world's markets, which would be very expensive for the EU and the Eurozone. And I think this really is the nub of it and is why I believe there will be a deal and there should be a deal. And people need to look beyond this whole state aid thing, which actually is at odds with the realities. And in fact, the dumping and subsidization and pollution of so you, financial so you, risk so arises from the Eurozone and the EU. So you're basically saying we get the deal by, by threat of what happens if we don't? Well, not a threat, but I mean, the, the default is WTO. If if we don't get a deal, certain consequences arise, which are expensive for the EU and I think damaging to EU interests. And so a deal with us is in their interests. I mean, a threat okay. is, I think, the wrong word. Uh, Anna Menon, what, what do you make of that? I mean, does it sound like, it's, it, it, I must say, it does sound a bit like a threat to me. Does it sound like a threat to you? If you're still with us, Professor Menon. I am. I'm here. Sorry. Yes. Uh, it does sound a little bit like one, but not a particularly effective one for two reasons. Firstly, because I don't think the WTO is that effective as an organisation. And to pin your hopes in the WTO bringing the EU to heel, I think, is a very long-term game. But, but secondly, sorry, just, if just we're to talking clarify tariffs, there, the, the, the WTO mechanics are self-help remedies. You don't have to go through the WTO. You just levy the tariffs that you yeah, no, that's true. But the second thing is, if you start levying tariffs, remember that we import a whole load of components for things we make here. So companies mm -hmm. like Ford have already said, if we have tariffs, the price of the cars that are made here is going to go up, which is going to hit our exports as well. So it's slightly more complicated than simply saying we'll tax their goods. But overall, I think I do agree with James that the way to solve this is to have a system whereby the EU can limit our market access in the event that we've been seen to, for instance, subsidise our, our companies too much using government money. But the, the trick to this is to find a solution that gives the EU confidence that those retaliatory measures will work mm -hmm. while giving the UK government confidence that it is actually free to do what it wants outside of EU law. And that's going to be quite a balancing act. Do you think... I mean, so obviously on any minor tariffs for car products and so on, we, we can determine what tariffs we apply and not applying them where it makes sense as well. Okay, so look, let, I mean, let's, we've, we've got, a, got about a minute left. Let's, let's cut to the chase. James, is this going to happen? Is there, if you had to go out on a limb, is there going to be a deal or is there not going to be a deal? Or do you think actually what is going to happen is, as you said, the, the kick into the long grass? I, I... Hello, James? Wow, what a, what a, what a cliff edge. Um, okay. I think you did that on purpose. <laughs> Anand, look, I'll, I'll, I'll throw over to you, Anand. Look, do you, do you think it's going to happen? Or do you, uh, think, I, do you think we're going to keep, keep bouncing along the road a bit further? James, I'll come back to you in a moment. If I was forced, and absolutely forced to choose, I'd say I think there probably will be a deal. Right. Okay. And of, of the sort that we are, that we are talking about? Or, yeah. And, 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 yeah. And, and now as well, in, I mean, in, within the time frame that, that is expected? Well, before the end of the year, yeah. Before the end of transition on the 31st. And will that look like a triumph for Boris Johnson? Or will it be sold as a triumph for Boris Johnson? Or, or will it look like a bit of a... a, bit of a I, I can't say the word, I can't say the phrase I'd like to, but the second word would be sandwich. 
<laughs> it will be certainly be sold as a triumph by Boris Johnson. I think that that will work to a significant extent. But it, even if there is a deal, it will be a deal that's fundamentally alters the terms of trade between us and the EU and so will have economic repercussions going forward. Sure. James, extremely briefly, I mean, do, you, do you agree with that or do you, are you, I mean, do you, do you agree with Downing Street? Do you think there is the 30 to 40% chance or do you think, or are you a bit more hopeful? I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a t- I'm, I'm a little bit more hopeful, but but I also am not that much more hopeful because I think this is a fundamental issue of principle for both sides. I think the only way we get a deal in the time frame is if you start to see real high-level engagement between Boris Johnson and his European counterparts. And, and we're not seeing that right now. I think part of the problem is because of COVID, Brexit is further down the agenda, yeah. both in the EU and the UK than it otherwise would be. Right, great. Well, look, thank you very much indeed to to my panel. That is James Forsyth, and that is an, uh, that is Anand Menon, and that is Bonnie Reynolds. Thank you very much indeed.